This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education, and I now work with school leaders to help them improve their leadership skills. Greetings, everyone. I am Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we will be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and security. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. And we'd like to first recognize our uh, mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. As a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, Buoyancy Digital is a great place to go. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hello. Good to see you today. Good to see you as well. I appreciate uh, yet another chance to delve into some fun cyber issues. And helping us to do that today is a gentleman by the name of Tony Anscombe, who is a global security evangelist for ESET. He has over 20 years of security industry experience, and he's an established author, blogger, and speaker on the current threat landscape, security technologies and products, data protection, privacy and trust, and internet safety. 
His speaking portfolio includes industry conferences, RSA, CTIA, MEF, Gartner Risk and Security, and the Child Internet Safety Summit. He is regularly quoted in security, technology, and business media, including BBC, The Guardian, The New York Times, and USA Today, with broadcast appearances on Bloomberg, BBC, CTV, KRON, and CBS. Mr. Anscombe, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Hi, Fred and Jethro. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. And we're excited because you're really the first of a series of cybersecurity experts we're going to be interviewing over the next few weeks. And I think it's great because you're a little bit more consumer focused than some of the other folks that we'll be facing. So this will be a good start. Is there anything about your background and your kind of technology career you'd like to plug into what I said? Well, the only thing I'd add to that is I started life actually programming. So for those older people out there listening, Copeland Fortran was my starting point in the technology industry. And I do remember around year 2000, somebody kept saying I should dust off my COBOL skills. It was really a, a, a ponytail-rich environment right around then. I remember I, I was deeply into that whole conversation. And yes, there were a ton of ancient COBOL programmers coming out of the woodwork. Yes, and I fortunately didn't. You know, I, stay, I stayed firmly in the uh, security, cybersecurity arena. That sounds great. Let me ask you this. I, you know, When you look at LinkedIn or some of your other online bios, the title is chief security evangelist. And and what does that mean exactly? Firstly, I'm based in the US and I used to be reside in the UK. And at that stage, I was called an ambassador. And when I decided to move to the US immigration department, didn't like the job title ambassador. So we ch- it got changed to evangelist, which is actually a term commonly used by Bay Area companies to describe somebody that goes out and talks about technology and is educating the market and creating awareness in the market of either issues around technology or how technology is used. So that's pretty much how I spend most of my days is actually talking about technology. I do have a, a real day job as well within the company. I look after, because I'm located in the Bay, I look after some of our important technology relationships with people like Google and Microsoft. So very important positions to be in for a cybersecurity company. Most of our listeners are probably not in technology as a chosen field, but are parents and users of technology. What types of cybersecurity threats should we be aware of as lay people not in the industry? So I think there's you can break that out down into certainly two big segments. There's something called at work and something called at home. Uh, during this pandemic, of course, the two are much the same thing. Work and home seem to cross over. But keeping our workplace secure is super important, especially in an education environment, because you're dealing with the data of children. And children are yet to have, or I hope yet to have, their data in data breaches, etc. Whereas you and I, and as most consumers, our data has already been disclosed somewhere in some data breach somewhere and is for sale on the dark web to a certain degree already. But there are lots of issues around cybersecurity that we should be conscious of. The biggest one I'd say personally actually is identity theft. 
And that comes in many forms, all the way from phishing links in your email, all the way through to credit an account on some spurious retailer that then has a data breach and somebody gets your identity that way. Tony, actually, one of the motivating factors for writing Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads was this underlying sense of the potential appropriation of cyber identity of children by parents. That is to say, parents who spend a good chunk of a child's life putting things out on social media and really shaping the identity of that child. And I know Europe is starting to look at this as a potential human right for children that they should have some ability to enforce. What are your thoughts on that? It's very interesting. So I was involved with my previous company in a project that looked in depth when your digital footprint was created. And you would make the assumption that a child's digital footprint is created at some stage when they create it. Actually, the majority of children's footprints are created with a sonogram, and that, son- that sonogram is posted by the parent, and therein lies the start of that digital art footprint. Uh, and the problem is the parents, who are proud parents, of course, want to share the details of their kids online, etc. But what they don't realize is they're creating a footprint that primarily is it may actually be difficult to remove later on should the child choose and whose data is that is that the child's or is that the parents because it's potentially the child's legacy that you're leaving on there and it's a challenge as part of that study we went from all the way from zero age all the way through to the end of high school and looked at the progress over a number of years now interestingly as a child then becomes a little older becomes a teenager would you want to hazard a guess at who is the one responsible, who they've had to ask to remove something from the internet. Would you want to have a guess at that? I would assume the parents. <laughs> Typically the mother, which always surprises people. And then they smile and go, yeah, no, I can see that. And it's interesting how it's not their friends. It's actually their parents. They end up having to ask because that embarrassing picture from when they were small or whatever, it recirculates and other kids see it and suddenly you've got this other issue going on. So it's important actually as parents, we take into account that the data we post is a creation of a digital timeline. This will probably not come as a great surprise to you then that when I was involved in parenting two boys and and two stepsons over a period of years, we saw the kids become very conscious of their digital image. And we had one of the four boys in particular be adamant that nothing could be posted about him online. It was just a huge privacy issue for him. Which is actually good to hear because I think there's a generation shift. So if you take the three of us, we're of similar years, I think, and hopefully I didn't just uh, insult one of you. But if you look at the three of us, we're similar years, and we were the guinea pigs of the internet. We were the test. So these things came along, and we had the ability to share things. And we did, and we didn't understand the consequences of sharing those things. And then regulation comes along, and the reasons why not to overshare come along. And now if we look at how our kids share, there is an element more of thought and privacy in there. And some of that's in the education system too. Now teachers typically teach kids how to about privacy, about cybersecurity risk. 
And those things are super important. And in certain countries, in fact, it's actually a mandated curriculum subject. So it actually needs to be taught by law. Which I think is a terrific idea. Let me ask you this. Obviously, you're in the ground zero, really, for technology, being in the Silicon Valley in the San Francisco area. What are the practical risks that parents should be aware of in terms of this information getting out into the world? How significant a risk, maybe a little bit less so for children, but certainly for parents, right, in terms of data being misused? Well, obviously, the biggest issue probably, I would say, is identity theft. And that stands for both the child and the parents. A cyber criminal with a social security uh, number can create a series of accounts and apply for a driver's license and such and steal the child's identity. And suddenly, you may be monitoring your own identity and your credit score, etc. But are you monitoring that of your child? You know, has somebody filed a tax return and taken on an identity of your child that you're, you're yet to protect or the child has even yet to use themselves? What you don't want to do is then get to a DMV at some stage and need to find that actually the child's already banned from driving yeah, for some some obscure reason. So it's actually really important that we think about you know, protecting that identity very early on. And, and I just mentioned credit reports. One of the things I'd recommend every parent do is actually freeze your child's credit report. In fact, I'd actually recommend that for all adults as well, by the way, is freeze your credit report. Because you, know, you can always unfreeze it when you need credit. If, if, if the need occurs, but freeze your child's until they're of an age where they can manage it. Well, and, and what I appreciate about that advice, Tony, is that there's a very real repercussion to not doing that and not knowing that your child's identity has been stolen until they go start interacting in those arenas. And at that point, if somebody else has had their identity for a number of years, it, it's going to be an even bigger mess to try to clean up that most people I think will not be prepared and equipped to do that. We freeze our credit reports. And then what would you say would be the advice if you find out that your identity has been stolen? What should be the steps you take to to deal with that big issue? Actually, one of the agencies in the US that has great advice is the FTC. And they have very specific advice dealing with child theft identity. And they have a website, identitytheft.gov. And I'd recommend you know, start there and it will actually take you through a process of how to report the crime and who you need to be contacting to actually start to take that identity back. It, I will say it's a painful task. I believe I read somewhere recently that the average person who has their identity stolen spends around 60 hours actually going through the process of trying to get it back. And it's a, it, like I say, it is a painful task. One of our upcoming guests... He's an attorney who deals with the victims of cyber stalking and cyber harassment within relationships. And I know that this is going to be one of the topics that we will raise with her because this is a common form of harassment by people who have access to that information. Absolutely. And stalkerware is an issue. It's apps that sit in stealth mode on somebody's device 
and sit without an icon so that the user doesn't know they're there, are implemented by somebody else. Typically, it's a jealous spouse or a controlling spouse. It can lead to domestic abuse, domestic violence, and is a real issue. I'm very interested to hear, actually, that podcast when you do record it. In the Cybertrap series that I'm working on, one of the titles on my to-do list is Cybertraps for Spouses, Partners, and Lovers, with the specific goal of helping people. Maybe you want to comment on this briefly, but the rise of smart devices is exacerbating this problem because someone is able to program it in such a way that they retain access to aspects of someone's life, even after they've left the premises. So I'm thinking like smart thermostats or Apple, uh, excuse me, Alexa, things like that. There's a lot of manifestations of this that are really concerning. Absolutely. I'm very pleased I have a technophobe wife and, and live in a house that's very disconnected. So I'm quite happy I don't have these <laughs> That's just great to hear. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, but yes, the number of connected devices is huge and people are starting to connect their houses in different ways, whether it's with a doorbell or whether it's with a door lock for ease of deliveries and et cetera, et cetera. It's not the device that's wrong. You often hear of, for example, somebody will turn and say things like facial recognition's wrong or, or the cameras on doorbells are wrong, et cetera. It's not the device that's wrong. It's the use of the device and it's how the data is being used. So, for example, if doorbells are then broadcasting that, that video stream or sharing that video stream in the wrong way, then that's there's the issue. Obviously, some devices do have vulnerabilities. And before you plug any device in at home, you, know, you should make sure that you've Googled the device, Googled whether it's got vulnerabilities, and most importantly, Googled whether the vendor has committed to delivering patches and is delivering patches and has it will deliver them over a certain period of time. This is, this. If I'm sorry, Dan, this is one of the topics, actually. People who rush out and buy these baby monitors that are Wi-Fi enabled and don't realize that the company hasn't issued a patch in five years, and all of a sudden they hear a voice coming out of their baby monitor, somebody in Poland, somewhere in the, who knows where. Or next door. But because the Wi-Fi it has a known vulnerability and it hasn't been fixed, people can search for these things over the internet and get access to it. And you really should in your home, if you have devices that you're not sure about, you know, have two networks in your home. Nearly all home routers today have the ability to have two Wi-Fi networks separated. So keep all of the, what I define as your smart devices that you're unsure of where the data is going or what they're doing, you know, keep them on one and keep your stuff on the other, your laptops and your data and the other the other bits on the other side. The only thing I would say is as a cybersecurity person, we often talk we all often sound negative and we often sound like there's a lot to lot wrong with the internet. Firstly, the internet's a fantastic thing. Let's be really clear. Think about how we all communicate and how our kids are taught, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So don't forget that it, it's really awesome. Yeah. Because that is something we, I think we don't always consider and always think about enough. So I want to go back to that suggestion you made of putting things on two different networks. If they're still going through the same router, are they still separate or are they still connected because they're going through the same router? Is that enough to protect yourself by having it on a different network? The other thing is to actually have two networks. So to separate the networks out, have a wired network and have a Wi-Fi network off a separate mesh or something and have a firewall. So turn on the firewall in the router. So in effect, you, you end up with two routers. 
but different technology. Some of the technologies actually put firewall technology between the two segments. It just depends on the device and, and how you've configured it. Yeah, I appreciate that advice because I think that I would have thought that was too simple to protect me if something happened. But it's possible, depending on what kind of a device you have, that could that could definitely work. So I personally do have a different network from everything else for my work computer, because to me, I can't afford to have something happen there like ransomware, heaven forbid, or something like that. And so that is on its complete own network. And none of the other, none of the other devices in my home connect to that network. However, I'm not sure whether that's the right thing to do or not, but to me, it's given me some peace of mind. So for someone who's a layperson, how do they make these decisions about what kinds of things they should do to protect themselves from identity theft and hackers and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of cybersecurity is about human behavior. There's lots of techn- yeah, the, uh, lots of technology out there that can protect you. I work for a cybersecurity company, he said, you know, who, and we provide anti-malware products. So what most people as consumers would know as antivirus products. But if you think about you're outside of the technology. It's a relatively simple process in my mind. You don't trust anything that turns up in your inbox. Don't click on any links. Yeah. If, if you're going to shop online, if you're only going to buy one thing from the store, don't create an account. So don't leave snippets of your data all over the internet with all these different retailers and different websites. And if somebody is asking you for your data, understand why and understand what they're going to use it for. So actually be bothered to go and read the privacy policy. Yeah, And you're only looking for three segments of the privacy policy, what they collect, who they share it with, and how long they're going to retain it and what the purpose of collection is for. You don't need to read all the rest of the legal rubbish either side. However, Fred, I know you're a lawyer, so you'll probably tell me I'm wrong here. But God, no, I would believe me, for starters, it would be wildly disrespectful <laughs> for me to tell you wrong about anything. But I will share this anecdote with you from about 10 years ago. Software browser companies, I think it was Norway. So, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name. They put into their terms of service, which was of course 60,000 words long, that the first person to send them an email requesting a $1,500 free cash payment would be entitled to it. And it took them six months to get anybody to actually request the money. Everybody just clicks through those TOS. What we do need, I would argue, is a much better structure for providing people with that kind of information policy. The nutritional information on products is not necessarily as good as it could be, but software and services should have a privacy information box that makes it very clear. One of the things that led me to you, Tony, was your book, One Parent to Another, that you wrote a few years ago. And in there, you had this great, this distillation of what people should be thinking about in terms of social media, which is similar, which was this WWW concept. Where is the content stored? Who can see it? And what data can they see? Or I, I would phrase it a little bit differently. What can, but it seems to me very similar to the privacy thing you're talking about. Yes. And since, since writing that book, you've now got in Europe, you've got GDPR. In California, you have a CC, a CCPA and CPRA is on its way in. So you have privacy legislation starting to catch up. But we've seen recently, I think, a great example of a disengagement with privacy policy, yet an engagement on a privacy topic. And I will use the example of WhatsApp. Suddenly you had this media frenzy 
and people leaving WhatsApp because apparently Facebook were going to be able to see all their conversations. Where, of course, as a cybersecurity person, I know end-to-end encryption means they can't. Yeah, They did change their privacy policy, and I'm not actually advocating their privacy policy here, but it was a complete misunderstanding because they changed their policy. Nobody actually read what the changes were. The changes were about were around some business elements and business transactions in WhatsApp and how they're going to monetize their platform, not your data, so i.e. allowing you to transact. But it shows that actually even the people in the know didn't read the policy and didn't understand the changes. So I agree. A nutrition label or something similar I think is super important. The other part I'd add to that is a harmonization of privacy uh, regulation. And I often use the example of, let's take a Chilean national who resides in California, who travels to Europe and books to do bungee jumping in New Zealand. Whose privacy legislation at the time of transaction applies? And no privacy professional can really answer the question because one is residential, one is by location, one is citizenship, and the other is by business location. So it's actually... Absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, it's incredibly complex. But we have, in the trade environment, you have the World Trade Organization and those default rules. Why can't the world have some default privacy rules? Well, that's, that borders on the philosophical, I will say, Tony, to be honest with you. It's a phenomenal question. What you're tapping in the extensive debate over globalization issues, right? Because we have invented this technology, which has wiped out local standards in many different ways. And I'll tell you, honestly, one of, one of my areas is obscenity law. And one of the direct results of the growth of the internet is the virtual elimination of the ability of the Justice Department to prosecute for obscenity, because the community local standard now is national, if not international. And so we've seen this really dramatic impact on the law. I suspect over time, and with backsliding and resistance and all the rest of that, similar things will emerge with respect to privacy, commerce, et cetera. And I'd argue that some of those things have already happened with the GDPR in Europe. Websites all over the world now are adopting that standard. And even in the websites that I manage, there are, you can say, do you want to show this to all visitors or do you want to show this to visitors that are just showing up from the EU? The amount of websites that I see that little cookie notification on that to be GDPR compliant, they're not located in, in Europe, nor are nor am I visiting from Europe, but I'm still getting those same things. So I feel like there's there's some areas where people are adopting those to to meet the needs of a specific locale. In my mind, that sounds like a good thing to do, except for those annoying bars that pop up that say, do you accept our cookie policy that don't allow you to not accept it? <laughs> but there is one of the problems, isn't it, is the fact that you can actually create a website and turn and say, I'm going to have this rule here and this rule over here. Surely isn't it somebody's human, regardless of where they are, where they reside or where they're a citizen from, shouldn't they be afforded the same privacy regardless? So actually, 
we should have one policy and you shouldn't be treating your website visitors differently. They should all be afforded the best policy. We would be here uh, for quite a long time if we were going to solve human rights debates. Honestly, Human rights is the wrong word for it, in fact, because it's not really a human, I don't believe it's a human right because that, that envisages other things, doesn't it, in our mind? Of course. Pri- yeah. Imagine how simple simple it would be if we had a global standard on privacy, how much easier it would be to teach kids in a classroom about how they need to behave around their identity and ultimately their security online. Yeah, I, I guess my I would have a one-word response, which is um, China, <laughs> which is going to be a real problem with respect to all of that. But actually, one thing which I think will be of real interest to our listeners are the ransomware cases that you mentioned. And one of them you'll actually really have to get me up to speed on, which is the Blackboard. That one I'm not familiar with. And then if you can segue into the case in India. Yes, and the Blackboard one is interesting. And the reason you haven't heard about it is because every organization who used their cloud service had to make the data breach notifications, not Blackboard. And that's why you won't have read that hundreds of millions of people have had this issue. That's interesting. Huh. But this was a this was an interesting one because it's a sea change in ransomware. So over the last couple of years, you've seen some changes in tactics of cyber criminals. So from if we go back all the way to the first ransomware back in 1989, yeah, which was a paper ransom, so they. They encrypted, scrambled your file directory, and you could send a check to a PO box in Panama, all the way through to today where it's been lock screens, encrypted uh, drives, etc., and it's been something you've clicked on typically an email. This Blackboard instance was more sophisticated. This is about a cyber criminal entering a corporate network, sitting in the corporate network, looking to see what data is important, and then launching their attack. Yeah. So it's a time and sophistication of resource, et cetera, on the cyber criminal side. Now, fortunately, the Blackboard cybersecurity team actually thwarted the attack. They stopped the attack, and the ransomware was never deployed. So this is a win for cybersecurity teams, definitely, and law enforcement that were involved, at which stage the cyber criminal got plan B out of their back pocket and turned and said, I've already got the data. You can pay me not to post it on the dark web. And the company paid. So the ransomware was no longer the ransomware. Was it? it was just extortion. But I think that's a one that's a change in the way cyber criminals, their modus of operandi is changing and they're becoming plan B is firmly in their back pocket and companies are paying. And that's a, wider problem because if companies do pay we saw UCSF pay 1.1 million dollars to a ransomware attack last year we've seen you know two municipalities in Florida pay 500 and 600,000 according uh, respectively this is a highly profitable business and so firstly i think paying a ransom should clearly be a crime because that stops mm. funding cybercrime. Uh, I could rant a bit on why we should get rid of Bitcoin as well and cryptocurrencies, but that's for another day. <laughs> Just from e- ecology grounds alone, energy consumption. Yes. Was it the energy of, of Argentina currently, isn't it? It's being used for exactly, mining. Exactly, yes. Without diverting us too much, because I do want to, is the modus operandi of the black bod approach similar in some ways to what happened with respect to solar winds, where they actually 
were infiltrating upstream in terms of the software updates that SolarWinds distributed? No, SolarWinds was a supply chain attack. So you take a component much further up the supply chain and you infect the component. And as it comes down the supply chain, then you take control of it again. The Blackboard one was just, uh, I would liken it more if you need to to an an ATP, so an advanced advanced persistent threat, something typically you'd think of as attacking a government or national entity that will sit in a network slowly and, and look at information. It's more along those lines, I think. What was interesting about Blackboard was the number of organizations involved. It was hundreds and hundreds of organizations that had to put out breach notices. And this was primarily in the education sector, education and nonprofit. Ah. So it was lists of students. It was lists of donors to organizations. Their marketplace primarily is education and nonprofit. So it was a massive data breach and on a global scale. Part of the thing for me is that I've gotten a number of notices of privacy breaches and they're all, they've all been vague enough and I've read them online. They're vague enough to say we like, we don't, Basically, we don't know exactly whose information was shared. I took a a one credit class at a college and I got a notice that the privacy breach happened and I interacted with them for one course and that's it. And now I need to worry about somebody having my information from that. At least with that, because it was such a limited interaction, I knew exactly what information I had to submit for them. But I feel like some of these notices, they don't actually help people make an informed decision because they're so vague about what was lost and they can't say, here's exactly what they have about you. It may be, but the the company doesn't actually know precisely what information was accessed or which information was taken. You've then got the question of, and I'll use the Marriott data breach as an example of if certain parts of the data was encrypted, did they take the encryption tools because in certain data breaches, like I think the Marriott one, they took the, data, the, the unencryption tools so they could decrypt the data as well. If I recall, if it, were, if it wasn't Marriott, it was somebody similar. But my point is, I don't think they always forensically know. Cyber criminals are very good at cleaning their path in. One, because they may wish to use it again. Two, if you identify how they've got in and how they've done things, then security companies and security teams will start protecting against that. So unfortunately, cyber criminals typically try and clean up after themselves. This is a nice opportunity to do a shout out to one of my absolute favorite books along these lines, The Cuckoo's Egg by Clifford Stoll. It's archaic at this point. It's like 1989 or something like that. But one of the best written books about how you try to track an intruder into a computer network. Yes, I read that book at college. Now I'm showing my age. I suspect we're similar in age, actually. Much closer, the two of us, than we are to Jethro. (laughs) But actually, before, if you could elaborate a little on the India ransomware story, and then we'll close up. I think this is a super interesting uh, story because there's very little difference sometimes between people on the right side of hacking and people on the wrong side. Uh, And we often talk about what happens in households and how to protect each other. This particular story got my attention because it had an 11-year-old at the center of the story. But the story starts of an Indian gentleman who has the 11-year-old son. The Indian gentleman received a ransom uh, 
uh, demand of a certain amount of money saying that his email account had been locked and they'd taken control of it and they had pictures and, and information that would be disclosed if he didn't pay the ransom. Now, correctly, he didn't pay the ransom, you know, which is a good thing, isn't it? Point number one for the, for the parent. And he went to the police. And actually, the, the thing I like about the story the most is the police actually did investigate. So clearly, the Indian police force understood what a cybercrime was. And, and uh, they traced the IP address of the person sending the demands back to the same house that the father lived in. And it turns out the 11-year-old son had taken control of the father's email account and obviously clearly wanted an allowance upgrade. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm being probably polite. What I love, love about this story is, one, it's highly amusing. Two, obviously it's very wrong, but how do you deal with that as a parent? Yeah, Because clearly you've now got this child who, who's tried to extort money from you, but also has an obvious an affiliation to technology and I think you need to make sure that child actually gets some the right guidance to take that desire to be in the technology arena and use it in the right way. I think actually one of the reasons I was so glad you brought up this example, Tony, and, and helped explain it is that it gives me a chance to introduce a topic that I think is really important for parents to understand, which is a lot of these activities are being automated in ways that makes it possible now for very young kids to engage in these activities. A good example, for instance, are the quote-unquote kiddie scripts that let people run uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And with a little bit of digging, your charming 11-year-old who should be on the soccer pitch can find these programs to run these attacks. Well, unfortunately, this particular child got their information of how to run this attack and how to avoid detection, which obviously actually wasn't very good advice because they didn't avoid detection, from YouTube. And yeah, this raises a, a, another big question, doesn't it, about what is responsible content to have on the internet? And is it, while it may be freedom of speech, sometimes I think regulation is needed because we wouldn't allow that type of information to be free-flowing offline. So why is it allowed to being free-flowing online? And it also brings up the the point about the parents not knowing what their kid was doing online and not being aware of his browsing habits and the things that he's looking at and all that kind of stuff, which we, Fred and I constantly talk about knowing what kind of things your kid's are getting into. And certainly, Tony, having you close out with parental controls and so forth is a great way for us to wrap up. But let me just say real part of the answer is the dominance of the United States with respect to speech, both in terms of the First Amendment and Section 230, which is why a lot of these companies are here. I'm grappling with a manuscript for a book called The Rise of the Digital Mob. And YouTube gets its own chapter in terms of the algorithmic rabbit hole that it pulls children into. And as a parent, actually, I was very worried about this because one of our four boys almost seemed like it was his life goal to watch everything on YouTube. <laughs> like it really was his 
he's fascinated by that. And fortunately, he's turned into a very sober banker and that's all great. But for a while, it was a, you know, touch and go thing. We'll put aside the kind of broader political and, and legal implications for on a day to day basis for parents. What are their solutions? Well, the most important thing is to have an honest and open dialogue. And I think that's actually one of the big barriers that a lot of parents face because you can have a discussion with your child around you know, the birds and the bees and biology in life. I think simpler than actually having a conversation around what they should and shouldn't do in social media and how they manage their friends and what they should and shouldn't post because it's it seems to be a darker element or that the parents don't want to address because it's nearly this is the topic that's going to cause a problem in the household where i think you have to open that conversation you have to have that open dialogue and you have to lead by example as well that's the other big important thing in there uh, of doing now I'm not an advocate. Now, I work for a security company. We have parental control products, by the way. I'm not an advocate for blocking. Yeah, I'm actually an advocate for education and in the extreme measure, monitoring. Because if you, I believe if you block, the, uh, block a child or certainly of a teenage age group, they will go down their friend's house and do it anyway, or they'll find another way to do it. So you're not actually solving the problem. You're just yeah. diverting the problem. This is exactly my philosophy as well, that if you don't have trust and your kids can't talk to you about the things that they're seeing, then blocking isn't going to do any good because they will find a way around it or they will go to the site that's not blocked and get the content there. And I think with younger kids, especially who are just getting introduced the first time, blocking is totally appropriate because they could stumble onto something that we don't want them to see, which is different than kids actively seeking it out. And there's a maturity level and a, a responsibility level that is different between those two that I don't want to accidentally expose my kid to something. But at the same time, if they go searching for something, they're going to find it if they're searching hard enough. And and that's just the the reality of the situation. And so you have to have the conversation. You have to consult with them. You have to bring it up, even though it's uncomfortable. And especially talking with my daughters of boys asking for pictures of them not wearing clothes. We have to have those conversations because those things are going to happen. As we learned from Jeff Temple a few weeks ago, that almost every girl gets asked to send an inappropriate picture. And we have to be prepared for those conversations. We can't just hope that they don't happen to our kid. Well, and the other thing I'd add there is, as a pet, I've spoken to lots of parents. And in fact, FOSI, one of the organizations I'm on the board of, ran a survey at the end of last year around parental controls and, and number of parents that use parental controls. And lots of parents said they did. I think something like 70% said they did, which I completely would be amazed at if that, if that was actually true. I think parents have an amazing ability to believe their own child is not the one that's going to go and search for things. All kids put push boundaries, and if they're not pushing boundaries, they're not being kids. So don't sit there and think, it's always somebody else's kid that's going to do this, not mine. Well, that was the great thing about talking to uh, Dr. Temple was when you look at the statistics, there's no arguing that it's not your child. The odds are 7 in 10, 8 in 10 that it is. I'm really glad to hear you say, Tony, that, that you prefer the education and the 
at worst monitoring as opposed to blocking. As a matter of fact, that was the approach we took with our boys. And, and we were very clear with them that we're going to provide you context. And every so often, I may look at the internet history. And if there is something I think we should discuss, we will do that. And this is what these are the kinds of choices you should be making. Absolutely. I, I'll leave and to cap this conversation off is I'll leave you with a short story about my son. You know, he's now off at law school, but when he was, I think he was 14, so of the age where he could have a Facebook account, but had never shown any interest in having one, joined high school who posted all their sporting fixtures on Facebook. So then did have a Facebook account. Now, obviously being in the cybersecurity industry, I'd like to have known that he'd signed up and he neglected to tell me, but I just happened to have seen an email that was left open on a device in the house from Facebook about content. So on the way somewhere, in fact, on the way to play tennis, I said, is there anything you'd like to tell me in the car? And, you know, what felt like 20 minutes on this two-minute car journey of silence in the car? No, I don't think so. And anyway, the, the subject thing, well, do you want to tell me about Facebook? Oh, yes, Dad. I've signed up for Facebook. I meant to tell you. And another, what felt like 20 minutes of silence, which was only probably 10 seconds, yeah, was then, how did you know? I said, I work for a cybersecurity company. You could embarrass me because I'm an evangelist and I have a team of people monitoring everything you do online all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's brutal. Part of my life is doing computer forensics. So I always told the kids, if I need to, I can pull the hard drive out of the computer and find everything that you've deleted, which of course their eyes would widen. It was great. Anyway, Tony, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much again for taking the time to speak. Oh, anytime. It's been great to be here. Excellent. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, awkward conversations with children, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and Tony is Tony at ESET, E-S-E-T. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. And we appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode of the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. 
Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.